John 1, 4 to 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. Well, good morning and welcome to the weekly gathering of Christ Community Chapel. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad you're here with us this morning, whether you're here in the West service with me, you're over in our East service, or you're watching online. Thanks for spending some time with us. I am really excited to keep our sermon series looking at the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John going. I have loved this series so far. Pastor Joe has been killing it. I've been enjoying every minute of it. And also, I have to tell you, I love the Gospel of John. It is probably my favorite book of the Bible. Now, one of the reasons I love it is because John tells you at the end, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, exactly why he has written his gospel. I love it because John actually, he writes after all the other gospels. So all the other gospels have been written and he's kind of read them and said, that's good, that's good, but you guys missed some things. Here's what I wanna add to the remembering of Jesus's life, to the celebration of his death and his resurrection. And in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, hey, look, I haven't written everything that Jesus did. There aren't enough books in the universe to capture all the things that Jesus is doing and has done and will do. He says, but these things that I have written, I've written so that you might believe and by believing have life. I love it because John is saying, if you're here this morning, you're watching online this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you might be thinking, oh, I've come this morning and this is not for me. I'm with a friend. I'm with a family member. It's really their thing. I'm just kind of here. That John says, no, 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 no. I have written this for you. You are who I'm thinking of. I want you to read this. And my hope is that by reading it, you're going to believe. So see, you came this morning thinking you were a spectator and you are the target audience. I love that. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you're thinking, well, okay, I guess I can sit this out. No, 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 because he says, I want you to believe, and okay, you've done that, but and in believing, I want you to have life. So John says, I don't just want you to believe intellectually, I want you to believe in such a way that it shapes who you are, it changes who you are. So non-Christian, this is for you. Christian, this is for you. It's almost like John is saying, if you're reading this and you have a pulse, this is for you. And I love it. And I love it. So if you have a Bible, would you open it to John chapter 1? By the way, it is totally okay to turn, take out your phone, bring an iPad, whatever device you're comfortable with, fire it up to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible in front of you here in the West service, in the pew in front of you, or over in East service, if you throw up a hand, we'll bring you one, are these handy Bibles. And what's great about these, uh, there are two things that are great about these. I mean, one is I can tell you that our reading today is on page 833. So if you have no idea how to find anything in the Bible, you are gonna look like a pro, okay? 833, flip it there and, and you'll find and you'll be able to read along with me. And here's the other thing. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to take this with you, okay? I want you to steal it. And if they stop you, just say, that handsome guy on stage said I could take this. Now, if you have a Bible, we will call the police on you, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Don't take it. Don't take it because it's nicer than your Bible. But if you don't have one, take it. And the Gospel of John starts on page 833. And let me tell you something. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, you make eye contact with me for a second. If you read the Gospel of John this week, I believe you'll meet Jesus. I really do. So if you're looking for your life to be changed, take this and read it this week. 
and let me know. If, you, if it didn't work for you, come back next Sunday. You can bring the Bible back. We'll take it, okay? So as you're turning to John chapter one, let me give you an outline, three points I wanna use to hopefully help these verses come alive to you. Three points, very simple. I wanna talk to you about home, heaven, and hope. Home, heaven, and hope. Or let me start with the first one, home. John uses three metaphors in these two verses. Life, light, and darkness. We're gonna get to darkness in a minute, but life and light are such powerful metaphors that I think John intends to use them two different ways. And they're actually my first two points, the two different ways he uses them. And the first way is remember he's been telling us that Jesus was in the beginning, that Jesus was with God and is God. Okay, now that's important. That's the Christian idea of the Trinity, that there's one God who's in three persons. Three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and one God. By the way, don't let that weird you out. It should expect, you should expect that if there is a God, he would be unlike anything else you know about or experience. And that is what the idea of the Trinity is conveying. God is not like you, he's not like me, he's not Morgan Freeman, spoiler alert. Okay, he is one and yet three, three and yet one, wholly separate from anything else in the universe. And Jesus is God and he made everything. You remember Pastor Joe's pictures on the screen last week of the Milky Way and you know, Jesus is the God who made the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls and plant life and animal life. He's the God who made everything in the universe. But in verse four, the writer tells us he's also the God who made you. Look at what it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. This great cosmic God who made the universe, who made everything, he also made you. He's the one who gave us life. He's the one who animates us, the one who causes us to live. He is the maker and shaper of human life. Now you might say, isn't that a bit redundant? Because earlier in the passage, he said that Jesus made everything. And everything, last time I checked, means everything, which includes us. So why would he go out of his way to say, oh yeah, by the way, he gave us life, he gave us light, he made us. Well, to understand that, you need to have a pretty good working knowledge of what the Bible says about the creation of people, which you can find in Genesis 1 and 2. No need to turn there now, but let me just remind you of some things or maybe introduce you to some things. In Genesis 1, God makes everything that is. And he does so simply by speaking it into existence. By the way, that's the language here, life and light. God creates life. And if you remember, the very first thing he says in Genesis 1 is, let there be light. Life and light. This is Genesis language. And God in Genesis 1 shows his amazing power simply by saying, let there be birds, let there be a sun, let there be a night, let there be a day. God is this universe speaking kind of God. But when it comes time to make people, we realize very quickly that of all the things God has made, of all the amazing, intricate, nuanced, powerful things that God has made, his favorite thing is people. So how do you know that? Well, a lot of ways. Let me just throw some at you. In Genesis chapter 1, when it comes time to make people, he doesn't simply say, let there be people. 
He says, let us, that's that one in three, three in one language, let us make man in our image. In other words, he says, what we're getting ready to make, what I'm getting ready to make is something different than everything else. It's not just something I'm making, it's something connected to me. It's something that is special to me. It's something that shares something with me, something made in my image. In Genesis 2, we're told that when it comes time to make man and woman, God gets his hands dirty. Again, he doesn't just say, let there be people. He actually gets in the dust and the dirt and forms Adam and later will take a rib out of Adam and form it into Eve. God, for, the, for God, the creation of people is a hands-on project. It's something that he wants to touch, something he wants to do himself. When it comes time to cause Adam to live, he breathes his own breath into Adam that causes him to live. And then when he makes Adam and Eve, he rests them in this paradise he's created for them called the Garden of Eden, and he lives there with them. As the old hymn goes, he walks with them and he talks with them. He enjoys intimacy and relationship with them and communion with them, and he gives them this amazing purpose. He tells them, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, to build and create and shape and mold. The, year, the world is yours, and then he rests. It's yours now. I can't wait to see what you do with it. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 are telling us that we were made for a special kind of relationship with God. That Jesus, the universe shaper, the universe creator, is our life and our light. His connection to us is what makes us who we are. Let me give you an analogy that I hope will help you make sense of this. About four years ago, I got a phone call one day. I'm driving home from work in a family that I kind of knew that had lived for a little while in southern Indiana where I'm from and had relocated to Florida, a couple in their 70s that was uh, very active in the foster care system. They were calling because they had a 14-year-old foster daughter who ran away from home and when she came back was pregnant. And the father had recently been incarcerated. They weren't sure what they were going to do. They were in their 70s, she was 14, the dad was out of the picture. And they asked uh, if Amy and I would consider adopting. Now, this will tell you the kind of husband I am. When I walked in the house that day, I only had about five minutes before I had to grab another kid and run them to their thing. So Amy said, how was your day? And I said, oh, it was good. Oh, uh, we need to talk about this later, but somebody called, they want us to adopt a kid. And I left. <laughs> and Amy was just freaking out. <laughs> And sure enough, we ended up going down to Miami uh, when the baby was born, and we adopted our daughter, Ella, who you can see on the screen behind me. That's Ella. We share cold weather gear. <laughs> Anyways, Ella is our daughter. She's three now, and we adopted her again uh, when she was born. You know, Ella, if you ask her, will tell you that she is adopted. She knows. And the reason why is because the modern current thinking about adoption is that the way you raise healthy adoptive children is you help them to make sense of and understand their origin story. You tell them, this is your family. This is, you know, this is where you live. This is where you belong. We love you. But we want you to know where you came from. We want you to know that you came from this courageous young woman who had a lot of choices she could have made but chose to have you and then made the courageous choice to ask for help 
in raising you. That's how you ended up here. You are here, you are loved, but this is where you come from. Experts tell us that the reason why that's true is because children who do not know the story of where they come from struggle with restlessness throughout their lives. There's just something about knowing your origins that are intrinsically meaningful for humans. And that's why this verse is telling us that you have to know that your home, your origin, where you come from, where you belong, what you were made for is an intimate relationship with the God who made you. Listen, if you feel restless this morning, and you're wondering why, in spite of all your professional success or your relationship status or your children or whatever it might be, if you're wondering, why can't I seem to ever feel like I belong? Why can't I ever seem to fit? Why don't I ever feel at home? The answer to that is that it's Jesus, the God who made you, who is the life and light you're looking for. You will always be restless until you know where you come from. This is what the church father Augustine said, our hearts were made to find rest in thee and they are never at rest until they find it. Do you feel that way? Maybe you wonder, what does that really look like? What does that really mean? Well, that's my second point, heaven. I wonder what you think of when you think of heaven. Pop culture has filled our minds with a lot of references. Maybe you think of floating in the air in a diaper with a harp. Maybe you grew up in church like me and you were terrified growing up that heaven was this all the time. I remember I kept being worried that my mom, there was no way my mom had enough crayons and candies and whatever to keep me in line. And did they spank you if you were restless in church in heaven? Because that was gonna be me, right? I was terrified of that. But listen, that is not the biblical idea of heaven. When the Bible ends, do you know where it ends? It ends here on earth. The Bible tells us that earth will be made new, that God will once again live with us, that he will once again set us free to shape and build and create. Listen, young people, let me tell you something. Heaven is everything you're looking for and that career you're starting. It's that breathtaking sense of we could do anything if there's no war, if there's no disease, if there's no lying, if there's no cheating, if, there's a, if God is with us, if God is our resource, what could we do? Heaven is life as it was meant to be. By the way, you already get this. The second way John uses this metaphor of life and light, in him was life and that life was the light of men, is the way we use it every day. And what I mean by that is all of us are pursuing life. All of us are pursuing the good life. Life as it is really lived, to really live, to really experience life. And whatever we decide is that thing or person that's going to give us life, then gives us light as to what is good and what is bad. What is helpful and not helpful. Let me give you an analogy. I want you to imagine two guys sitting in cubicles next to each other at a workplace on a Friday afternoon at 4.30. One guy tells himself that the good life is achieved through professional success. 
That the way you really live is you make something of yourself. You get the corner office, you make partner, you hang your own shingle, you, you, you become CEO, you, you rise to the level where everyone says, wow, that guy has made something of himself. The guy in the cubicle next to him says, to really live is to pour yourself into your family to be a great dad, to be a great husband, to, to be a great son, to pour yourself into the people who love you and to love them well. On paper, those guys are very different, but in reality, they're the same. They have two different definitions of what it means to really live, but they're both chasing this idea of the good life so that when five o'clock comes, they respond differently for the same reason. The guy who says professional success is what leads to happiness makes sure that the boss sees him when he pulls out extra work to do and settles in and orders, orders uh, delivery for food and calls his wife and says, I won't be home till late, I have work to do. He makes sure that the boss sees him so that she knows he is there to succeed. And as everyone else runs home for the weekend, he says, what a bunch of suckers. Don't they know you're never going to get ahead doing that? Meanwhile, the guy in the cubicle next to him waits for the boss to turn her back. And as soon as she isn't looking, he's going out the back door, whistling to himself, saying, this might cost me at work, but life isn't about work. It's about playing catch with my son and barbecuing for the family and being a good husband and father. Both of them are letting their definition of the good life shine light on what is good and what is bad. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. We let our definition of the good life show us how to live. But John says that if we're really looking for life, to really live, we're not going to find it in family, and we're not going to find it in work. We're going to find it in Jesus. Now, that might hit you hard, but let me put it this way. Think about how many times over the course of your life your definition of the good life has changed. I mean, what, what did you think the good life was when you were eight? You ever heard the Jerry Seinfeld comedy bit? The kids grow up thinking, get candy, get candy, get candy, get candy. Because when you were eight, the good life was get candy. Just have some candy. Life is good with candy. Then when you got a little older, it was the cute girl or the cute guy. Then it was getting into the college that you wanted, getting the job you wanted, getting married, having kids, getting rid of the kids, right? It was... But do you see what's happening? The goalposts just keep changing. Why? Because while all those things can be good, none of them actually deliver on the idea that because I have this, my life has meaning and purpose and value. John says that we will keep changing the goalposts until we realize that the one who made us for relationship with him is the only one in whom we will actually really find life. By the way, do you know who really understood this? Jesus. Because when you read the Gospels and you read the life of Jesus, you see this beautiful man. This man who stands against all the isms and divisions of his day. This man who is firm when the culture is soft, who's soft when the culture is harsh. This incredibly generous, kind, truth-telling man. My family recently started watching The Chosen. I don't know if you're in on this. We're a little late, but I'm a middle-aged white guy. I'm late to everything. 
So we just started watching The Chosen. I, I, you know, it's not the Bible. It's not the Bible. But, but what's interesting about it is how your heart sings a little bit every time Jesus steps onto the screen. Because there's just something about the way he lives. Well, what made him that way? And you might say, well, in the beginning was the word. And the word, he's God. Well, I guess that is part of the answer. But the bigger part of the answer is that he was a man who enjoyed intimacy and relationship with God. See, here's the thing. Work isn't bad. But as long as you let work define you, it will enslave you. Family isn't bad, but you want to destroy your children, make their successes and their failures the sum total of the worth of your own life, and watch how you oppress them. You see, what Jesus did is he didn't alienate himself from all the things that, may, that are what it means to be human. He lived real life in the real world out with everybody else. But the reason why he was beautiful when I am ugly is because he knew that what defined him was his relationship with God. He knew who God was. He, he knew the way God felt about him. He was secure in that. So he loved other people without using them. He loved other people without needing their approval. And so he was able to be beautiful in the ways in which insecure me cannot be. You see, that's the point. In him was life really living. And that life was meant to be a light to us, which would say to all of us, the lives we are settling for are not the lives we were meant to have. In fact, young people, if I could tell you anything about Christianity, it would be this. The message of Christianity is not that God is out to limit you. The message of Christianity is that God wants you to stop limiting yourself. He does not want you to simply repeat what the generations before you have called life. He wants more for you. And Jesus was the template. Jesus was the example. Jesus was the one who was showing us this is what it really means to live. Jesus is not meant to be this example that we point to and say, wow, he was great and we're so awful and I wish, I wish we could be like him, but, but who can be? No, Jesus was meant to be a light that guided us to move towards being like him saying, if God loves us, if I was meant for relationship with God, if I have relationship with God, then I can move freely in the world. Working, sure, but not being defined by it. Having a family, I hope so, but not oppressing them or being oppressed by them. I'm free to be the beautiful, relational worshiper that I was meant to be. Now you might say, well, how come we don't see more of that? And that's my third point, hope. How could we have hope that this kind of life is actually available to us? Well, you notice there's a third metaphor here, darkness. Darkness. Darkness makes sense to us when we think of darkness. Light and darkness, good and evil, bad guys and good guys, God and Satan. And certainly when the Bible uses the word darkness, it's often referencing this kind of present evil in the world. The Bible is very clear that there is supernatural evil at work in the universe. But I don't think that's the darkness he has in mind here. Instead, what he's talking about is the kind of darkness that tends to rob us of life and light. 
The kind of darkness that tends to rob us of the lives we really want to live, of the dreams we have, of the hope we have, a kind of slowly encroaching, regressing darkness. I read an article this week about a guy in rural Georgia. You didn't even need me to tell you this is there. As soon as I tell you the story, you're going to go, sounds like rural Georgia. There's a guy who has an old car museum. Only it's not like any old car museum you've ever heard of. He just takes old cars and parks them in his yard and lets trees grow up in them. So you can, you can walk through these aisles of cars with that are old and decrepit and these big massive trees or vines or branches are shooting through the cars. And he, you know, it's just the way he likes to remember them. He calls his museum Old Car City, which is not the most creative name in the world, but what are you gonna do, right? But I remember reading the article, and look, I'm not a car guy. I, really, I, don't, I know very little about cars. But I remember reading the article and looking at the pictures and thinking there's something wrong about this. This is not what these cars were meant for. You know, I, I drive by the church when they're doing the, the car show that we do in the parking lot here, or Johnny's Diner here in Hudson will do uh, these car shows, and you see these old cars restored to their former glory, and they, there's just something great about it. And then you look at a tree growing up in one, and you think, ah, eh, it's not the same. <laughs> but, but also, I think about, like, the stories of these cars like, I think about the day that dad drives it up in the driveway, just bought it off the lot, pulls in, the kids come out, everybody's so excited, everybody climbs in it, he tussles Junior's hair and says, this is going to be yours one day, son, or, or he, he tells his daughter, this is going to be yours one day, sweetheart, and, and they have all these dreams, and they take vacations, and it's loved and enjoyed, and they have the future that they see, and now it sits in some guy's yard with a tree in the middle of it. And you just see that all those dreams have reached this conclusion, broken down with a tree growing up in the middle of it. That's the kind of darkness he's talking about here. The reason why we go from candy to a boyfriend or girlfriend to college to marriage to children to retirement to vacation to the reason why we're always looking and changing and shifting, finding, trying to find something that works because everything ends up as an old broken down car with a tree in the middle of it. It ends up disappointing. It ends up not being what we wanted. We end up discarding it. That's the kind of darkness he's describing here. And yet, and yet, and yet, is that what happened to Jesus? You know, it's interesting because you read this beautiful life that Jesus lives and all these incredible things he says about how he's God who's come looking for us. He's God who's come because God wants that intimate relationship back with us. And, and he knows there's something between us. And he knows it's what we've done and it's what we've said. So he's come to live in our place perfectly, righteously, to go to the cross and to die in our place so that God's anger and judgment can be vindicated so that when he dies and he raises from the dead, we can be accepted. He says all these wonderful things and he lives this beautiful life and yet he goes to the cross and he dies. And in that moment, he seems like just another car with a tree growing up in the middle of it. And that's what everybody says around him. You can go read it. They say, this guy can't be God. He can't be from God, because this wouldn't happen if this guy was from God. What are they saying? They're saying this is just another dream that we chased. This is just another hope that we had. Let's time to move the goalpost. Time to figure out what's next. This guy didn't know any more about living than we do. And they were right, it seemed like, for three days. 
And then he rose from the dead. And he ascended into heaven. And he sat at the right hand of God. And he began to intercede for us. And he said, everyone who comes to me for life will not only get it, but there is no darkness that will take it away. By the way, these verses show you that. Let me show you something really cool. Okay, you ready for this? Grab your Bible, grab your phone, grab your device. Let me show you something really cool. Check out the verb tenses here. In verse four, it says this, in him was life. What verb tense is that? Good, all right. Pastor Joe can do interaction. I can do interaction too, okay? In him was life. That's past tense, was life. And the life was, what verb tense is that? The light of men. Now, that makes sense, right? Because if he's talking about creation, that happened in the past. If he's talking about the life of Jesus, that happened in the past. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. But I want you to see in verse 5, look at the verb tense. The light shines. I won't ask you what verb tense that is. That gets tricky. But it's present, continuous. Do you see the change? In him was life, and that life was the light of men, but the light shines. That means it is shining, and it will continue to shine. Look at what it says. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see what the writer is saying? He's saying, look, creation happened, and Jesus' life happened, but the shining, the hope, the indication that God wants relationship with us, that he's willing to do whatever it takes to restore it, even the sending of his son and the death of his son and the raising of his son, even willing to forgive us, that indication, that shining is happening now and it will keep happening and it will never stop happening until the day when God lives with us again. That's hope. That's hope. Listen, Living long enough is a series of broken dreams, of things you thought would make you happy that don't, of a bunch of cars sitting in your front yard, metaphorically, I hope, with trees growing up inside of them. But you weren't made for those things. You weren't made by those things, for those things. You were made for relationship with God. And it's yours if you want it, in Jesus. And if you have it, there is no darkness, whether it be Satan, evil, or the slowly encroaching decay. There is no darkness that will ever overcome it. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for these verses. Thank you that you bring this cosmic picture of who you are in verses one through three, and then you bring it close in verses four and five. And that's who you are, isn't it, God? You, you're big, you're mighty, you're amazing, you're three and one, one and three. You defy our logic, our understanding. You don't fit in our brains. You create universes by speaking, and yet you are near. My prayer is that for some here this morning, they would experience that nearness for the first time. And for others, that we would be reminded that that is why we are here. That our hearts were made for you and they will never find rest in any other place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.